greetings. Welcome once again, everyone, to Wisdom Within. We are the website and podcast that encourages mental health awareness, education, uh, self-advocacy, and hope. And we are excited to have you with us today as we uh, take a look at a great resource called TheMighty.com. We're going to share a few pieces from uh, some of those postings today from some of their contributors. Uh, There's a separate section on TheMighty.com. They deal with all sorts of health issues, but there's a separate section on there called called Mental Health uh, on TheMighty.com. So I encourage you to take a look at that. going to visit a couple of different articles today on depression and living with uh, depression and how it affects our loved ones. Uh, We're going to look at traumaversaries, the anniversaries of traumatic events in your life and how those can affect you. Um, I want to say that this, what this is basically all about today is the fact that we're still here. I'm still here. There was a call to action coined decades ago nothing about us without us by a group of mental health consumer survivors who through sheer determination formalized the mental health peer movement and truly enabled the meaningful voice it has today no longer is the science behind mental illness denied no longer are we at the mercy of what experimental treatments might be the latest in vogue no longer do people deny that mental health and physical health are all part of one person one wellness. Well, most people don't deny it, especially understanding that one in five people across cultures, across regions, across continents will live with a mental health condition during their lifetime. Currently, it's reported that one in four adults and one in five children are affected. Currently, 58 million people in the United States. Everyone knows someone affected by mental illness. The peer movement and now the peer support movement are here to stay and still here to say that recovery, that there is recovery, there is help, there is hope. We are better selves when we help ourselves and when we help each other. So we're going to come back in just a moment with a few more thoughts and then some looks at TheMighty.com and their contributors. Stay with us. Welcome back, dear listeners, to the podcast at Wisdom Within. I'm Kathy Serline. We are thrilled to have you with us again today. Uh, We're talking today about uh, some discoveries we've found during our recovery uh, and some beneficial links that we've gained in our search. Uh, Mighty.com, TheMighty.com is one of those. Uh, we're going to get to some of those, uh, dip into some of those uh, observations and discussions in just a moment. Uh, we're talking about um, how we are better selves when we help ourselves and well, when we help each other. Uh, also true uh, in any recovery journey. Uh, that we can experience setbacks. Uh, No different than recovery from any physical ailment might be. It is true for everyone. It's also often the case that physical ailment can contribute to fluctuations in our emotional well-being, or perhaps that some sort of unexpected life detour has put up a roadblock. Let's be honest, any number of things can result in an emotional 
setback, whether you live with a mental health condition or not, enough to sort of end up feeling in limbo, almost unable to take a next step, even if we know what the next step needs to be. Uh, having experienced a similar crisis of confidence very recently myself, doubting my ability, doubting what I'm actually, what help I'm actually being, I found it was the informal support of another peer supporter that helped me recognize out loud what was behind my feeling of, well, stuck. More importantly, it brought me to realize that I'm still contributing to the greater good, even during my setbacks, because that's what my goal is. That's who I really am. It's what I feel called to do. It's taken me decades to get to know me. I'm not going to lose sight of myself again, even though I know setbacks can come. The journey is here for everyone. I'm no less a part of it by my condition, by my setbacks, or by my sometimes less than stellar confidence level. I am still here. I am on my journey with all of its ebbs and flows and failures and successes, just like everyone else. I will continue to make my voice heard to promote mental health awareness, education, and self-advocacy. I will stand up. Life is not about me, but I won't have it happening without me either, because I'm still here. So I want to share something with you now uh, that I found during my regular perusings on mentalhealthatthemighty.com. Uh, this, is, this is called A Letter to Those Affected by My Depression. It's actually... I think from about four years ago uh, when I first saw this um, and it really resonated with me uh, not necessarily the specifics of it but the general uh, ideas and thoughts and feelings that it puts forth so hopefully this can not only be um, useful to say out loud for me and for others like me, but hopefully it can bring some perspective to those we love and care about, uh, our our friends, our loved ones, our schoolmates, our work uh, peers and colleagues, um, in, in what they may have seen uh, during times with us that uh, had some impact on, on the relationship. So, again, this is called A Letter to Those Affected by My Depression from mentalhealthatthemighty.com. And it starts out just by saying, I'm sorry. I know those two words seem so small, and they are. They're, not, they're nothing more than seven simple letters, but I don't know where else to start. So I start with, I'm sorry. There are things I'm not sorry for, things I can't be sorry for. I'm not sorry for my illness. It's something beyond my control. It's a physical disorder as much as it is a mental one. But I am sorry for the years I've wasted feeling sorry for myself. I'm sorry for the years I've tried to hide my illness, to keep it a secret. You see, that secrecy has been our undoing. I've pushed you away and you never knew why. You may not have even realized I was doing it, but there were canceled plans, birthday parties I failed to attend, and social gatherings I forced myself to go to 
sometimes resentfully and begrudgingly. It wasn't your fault. I was too broken to hold myself together, but because I was also too scared to tell you the truth, I would just sit there, forcing an awkward smile, some stale conversation about weather or work. I'd excuse myself from games or other events, and while I wouldn't necessarily leave, I would withdraw to a corner and watch while you laughed and played and participated. You thought I was a buzzkill, and I was. But what hurts me the most, what I'm most sorry for, is that you may have thought I was too good for you, too good for childlike games or whatever it was, but that was never the case. The truth is, I want to be happy. I want nothing more than to laugh with you and enjoy myself the way you do. But there's a disconnect somewhere, and I can't. Sure, there are moments of happiness and joy, but a lot of my life is just about getting by. So instead of pretending, I pulled away from you and from life. I focused on really little things like brushing my teeth or taking a shower. It seems strange to even mention these as accomplishments, but when you don't want to get out of bed and when you have lost the will to live, the simplest of things can be the hardest to do. It's because they're mundane. That is all your life is in the midst of depression, the banal, the routine, and the mundane. I'm sorry for not being present, for not celebrating in your successes and your joys. Please know, I wanted to, but sometimes the pain held me back. The pain of seeing everything I wanted but would never have, could never have. It's selfish, I know, but I didn't know then how to handle it. I'm sorry for the times my temper has been short and you've been the recipient of my rage. Anger has been the most unexpected symptom of my sickness. When I was a teenager and even well into my 20s, my depression was marked by melancholy. But as the years passed, the symptoms shifted. While sadness still permeates days, it's the anger I cannot ignore. It's the anger that scares me. But my volatile words cut you, and my blind and unforgiving rage injures you, and I'm sorry. It's embarrassing and scary to admit you need help, to admit you are not okay. You know, once you let your secret out, you'll have no choice but to follow through with therapy. You'll have to talk to friends and family about your illness, even when you don't want to. You know you can't close the curtains and hide anymore, and that thought is terrifying. Sometimes we find the light and make it out. I have before. In fact, I'm currently on an upswing. But that doesn't mean I'm better. In fact, I know better than to believe I'm better. Depression is a lifelong disease. My depression will return. There's nothing I can do to stop it. The only thing I can control is how I handle it when it does. And for me... Handling it means not hiding from it. Handling it 
means drawing back the shades and letting everyone in. So, to everyone entangled in this mess with me, I'm sorry. I never wanted to hurt you or drag you through this decades-long nightmare. I love you for standing by me, and I hope you still can. But I also understand if you need to step back, if you need to walk away. No, I will love you all the same. So we're sharing today some great uh, pieces that we have found uh, at themighty.com. We encourage you to check that out. There's an entire section uh, on themighty.com on mental health uh, with contributors over many years. Uh, we're looking today at a specific article on coping with the anniversary of trauma or trauma-versaries. Um, these are something that, uh, you may be aware of, perhaps not for our family. February is a, uh, traumatic month. We had a, uh, a niece. I had a niece pass away, uh, in a motor vehicle accident when she was 19 years old. That happened in 2010. And that was during the month of February as is her birthday. So, um, in honor of, uh, my beloved niece, Jenny, I'm going to share with you now uh, some thoughts on how to cope with the anniversary of trauma. And again, this is from Mental Health at TheMighty.com. How to cope with the anniversary of trauma. Experience a tra experiencing a traumatic incident can be extremely emotionally draining. Oftentimes, when the date of a past traumatic event comes around the following year, it becomes an anniversary, a traumaversary. It doesn't have the same joy as a birthday or a dating anniversary. Instead, these are days that can be filled with melancholy, with fury, with rage and resentment and heartache and more for years and years and years. But scores of people have traumaversaries every year. So many of us have witnessed national tragedies firsthand, mass shootings, environmental disasters, deaths of leaders and celebrities and terrorist attacks. So many of us have survived individual traumatic incidents, sexual violence, family rejection, police brutality, self-harm, hate crimes, overdoses, extreme injuries, deaths of loved ones. What happens when a traumaversary rolls around for the first, second, third time, and so on? Here we talk with a community counseling and licensed associate counselor uh, and a founder of an online community uh, for teens grieving their parents um, who give us some important tips. First of all, remind yourself that it's okay to feel. The first step is to make space for yourself, to allow you to experience whatever emotions that might show up. While everyone's experience and needs are unique, we advise that folks generally create a really gentle space for themselves 
or spaces for themselves the day before, the day of, and then after the historical date of the trauma. Whatever trauma you have, it's important to think ahead and stay mindful of an upcoming traumaversary rather than just brushing it to the side. If you have unresolved trauma, it could backfire through exacerbated symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, including flashbacks, nightmares, sleep problems, difficulty concentrating, and more. And that's according to Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Uh, po practicing positive self-talk can be key. On traumaversaries, such affirmations as, I'm safe, I will be okay, as a reminder that we are capable and skilled at caring for ourselves. Over time, these positive phrases can replace negative ones. I always use a lot of self-talk to help remind my brain and my body that I'm safe, that I will be okay, that I can take good care of myself because a threat is over. Uh, according to an article in Psychology Today, therapists use a practice where they identify the source of any negative messaging people might think on a traumaversary and then work with the person to intentionally overwrite them. Uh, as an exercise in a journal, you can make a list of negative phrases like, I am unsafe, I am helpless, and then next to it, make a list of positive phrases to replace the negative ones. Uh, in creating a plan, uh, one of the authors lost her father when she was 13 years old. And as a teenager, for the first few years after his death, her mom carefully curated an entire day with activities that her dad had enjoyed. We would go visit him and we'd go eat dim sum, his and my favorite followed by a baseball game, and then to top it off, we'd reflect on our day as a family. However, remember that it's up to you to choose how you want the day to go. If you want to forget about the occasion, allow yourself to take your mind from it. It's okay and valid if you want to treat the day like any other day. Just be sure to think and plan ahead so the day doesn't creep up unexpectedly. Trauma can leave indelible markers on our bodies, says the author. I've had several clients who've come to me either as a racial justice coach or in my private counseling practice to plan ahead around a coming traumaversary. We create plans for their well-being around the specific trauma event. We've mapped out their needs and established what kind of support they'd request of themselves and of their loved ones. On trusting the process of grief, the author stresses in the past couple of years that the traumaversary of her father's death has left or has felt less of an occasion. The day itself is still hard and can often feel surreal, but in many ways it feels like it's been enough time that the most appropriate thing to do is just be together. This shows that while the pain of loss never may never truly go away, we grow and learn healthy ways to cope with grief, such as spending quality time with close family, with friends, and with community members. We build resi resiliency in the context of a community. 
So we always highlight suggesting finding at least one or two other folks that you can talk through anything with that might come up for you. Find experiences that remind you you are connected to something larger than yourself. So we are sharing some pieces with you today from themighty.com, uh, which uh, has a whole section unto itself on mental health. This piece was written by Ari Eastman, who is a thought catalog contributor, uh, and this was actually posted on themighty.com, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, so let me share this with you. This one is on when depression makes you go into social hibernation. So Ari says, it's no secret that I work through mental health issues every day. It's something I'm incredibly proud of, not in some weird, misinformed, woohoo, depression is a blast kind of way, but just that I'm happy to speak up about something people have been shamed into silence about for so long. If I'm going to share myself so pub publicly, I want to, sh want to show the not-so-cute parts, the dirtiness, the times I was not a person I like very much. Ari says, I was first, dis first diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 14, but I'm pretty sure it made its grand appearance about two years earlier. I've been an anxious thing since birth, didn't even recognize that those weird moments of heart palpitations and dizziness and nausea were actually panic attacks <clears throat> until I went away for college. And then the bipolar 2 diagnosis came along as well. Part of getting older and discovering more about myself, including those things I don't like, has been learning about my coping mechanisms, how I deal, why I do the things I do. I am the biggest self-analyzer you'll meet. I like to play therapist to myself, not that it should ever take the place of a professional. Maybe it's fucked, but I get a sick joy unlocking new answers as to why I'm fucked up about something. I get to be a neurotic Sherlock, and my own damn mind is the case I'm trying to crack. Ari says, he's always been withdrawn. As a kid, I rarely made it through the night at sleepovers. I would end up calling my mom at 2 a.m., asking her to pick me up. It's like I couldn't settle until I was alone again. Even with people I loved, I kept watch on the clock. I routinely made up excuses as to why I couldn't attend social events. I had my handful of friends and never really cared to expand it much. Even now, my social circle is tiny. Today I thought, wow, if I ever threw a party, who would I even invite? My mom? My dog? I think that might surprise a lot of the online community I've created. I've been told I come across as very bubbly, super open, basically a golden retriever in human form. Sure, there's some truth in those statements. I get very excited and passionate about seemingly small things. I'm a hugger. My natural instinct is to believe in people. I trust everyone. I give second chances and thirds and fourths. But I'll always be the first one to leave the party. It's difficult to know if this is because of anxiety or if it's just a personal trait. Maybe the two are not mutually exclusive. I think one of the hard parts of loving someone who struggles is that even though they don't intend to, they hurt you, even when you're just the bystander. I know when I withdraw, when I stop returning texts, 
texts, when I ghost from people's lives like I was never there to even begin with. It's something that stings. And every time I wake up and discover, oh shit, I've been hiding for a few months, I feel terrible. But it is a cyclical process. It's a hard thing to change when it feels like it's part of who you are. I don't ever mean to pull away. It's never malicious. It isn't because I hate someone or that I've decided my life is better off without them. It's because my fucking brain says, you're done for a while, go hibernate, you weirdo. And so I do. I hibernate. I'm a hibernating human. What I'm saying is, I'm still here. Despite writing endless poems about it, I am not good at telling people when I'm hurting. So I hide. I avoid. I ignore. And none of it is good. But I'm still alive. Sometimes I just need to escape for a bit. But I come back. I promise I'll always come back. This story was brought to you by the Thought Catalog and Quote Catalog on TheMighty.com. And our thanks to Ari Eastman, the Thought Catalog contributor who wrote this piece. Thanks for listening. Our final piece from TheMighty.com today is going to talk about signs you grew up with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Kids often aren't taught about trauma or mental illness in school, at least they certainly weren't when I was growing up and until actually very recently before it was even uh, started in some states being treated or being taught in school about mental health and wellness along with physical health and wellness. So if you grew up struggling with the impact of trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder, it may have been easy to feel like you were alone in the way you felt because who do you tell this stuff to when you're a kid and you don't understand anything about it? The, unfor the unfortunate reality is that many kids uh, experience trauma and can, and can develop PTSD at a young age. It could be uh, physical or sexual abuse, violence in the home, a horrible car accident, or something else entirely. Traumatic events leave a mark on a child's mental health. So TheMighty.com wanted to know what signs people recognize now were actually due to childhood PTSD. So they turned to their mighty community to share their experiences. No two people are alike, so it's important to remember that no matter what your experience growing up was, you're not alone in your struggle. So the purpose of this was uh, to share with you that you're not alone and uh, the number of responses they got was huge. But here's what they shared with the mighty. Uh, one of the uh, first things uh, what, that came up as in the comments was daydreaming or dissociating. Uh, years of mentally living in, a in your own body uh, to avoid physical and mental trauma leaves you disconnected from your physical self. Another person says, I daydreamed all the time. It was my escape from what I was going through. In class, I played with stationery rather than listen. My imagination was huge. Um, another unexpected reality of childhood 
uh, PTSD later in life is oversharing, something I've been accused of many times. Oversharing, often at inappropriate times or around strangers. I'd say too much about my life experiences. And we think now, maybe it was because I was desperate to get them out of me. Um, Rachel on TheMighty.com said, I had a bad habit of talking very plainly about really messed up stuff while trying to make friends. People told me to be myself or talk about my life to make friends, but that's horrible advice for an abused kid. Um, and the other thing, too, is that we don't think about necessarily when we're oversharing is that we could be triggering or re-traumatizing the person that we're talking to if they went through <clears throat> a similar type of situation. So oversharing is something uh, to recognize and something to try and work on caution, using caution with. Uh, another, uh, another comment that came out on the mighty.com during this request for comments was flinching, uh, came up from more than one person. Uh, Ashley said, I would flinch at everything. Uh, a raise of the hand, a loud noise, a change in someone's attitude, specific sounds and voices. I was in a constant panic all the time because everything scared me. And Cindy said, I'm constantly flinching when people move around me, like when they try and hug me or put their hand up. All my life, my mom would hit me. So as a result, I am so cautious and paranoid. I can tell you from my personal experience, I have a very annoying habit. Just ask my husband and my sons. I flinch when when I'm in the car in the passenger seat. <laughs> it's it's funny to me now, but it's not funny in the moment. And I'm much better about it than I was years ago. Um, but I, <clears throat> I'm very trusting of the people I... I get in a car with and whoever's driving, I, I feel a confidence level in their driving or I wouldn't get in the car with them. But I am very untrusting of pretty much every other driver around us. So if the slightest movement from another vehicle happens and it, 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 it will cause me to flinch and I'll be like, ah! you know, which is not good to do to someone who's driving you somewhere out of the goodness of their heart. So um, I'll just I'll just give you that reflection. You know, so it's something that I work on intentionally. Um, and it's how we do when we're in recovery. We figure out what quirks we've developed as a result of our uh, of our journey uh, through mental health uh, conditions. And we we find a way to try to address them as we go along. Once we figure out that we're, those are actually connected, you know, what's, what's the reason behind this? Um, some other things that came up in the mighty.com's request for comments. Uh, a lot of folks talked about acting out in school. I didn't really do that myself, but apparently it was, it's a thing. Um, that needs to be given some consideration. Jennifer on the mighty says, <clears throat> that she bit the school principal because he had restrained her when he was ha when she was having a panic attack. She got scared and freaked out trying to defend herself and get away. So we can start into this with a chuckle, but obviously it's got a very serious piece in her trauma history. Um, 
Another, Zara says, I dissociated constantly. Most of the time when someone was talking about something that had the potential to hurt me. It was an issue when Zara was in school, constantly being pointed at as a problem. Uh, she was distracted and had a lack of attention. Hypersexuality came up uh, in the comments uh, that no one really wants to talk about it. Hypersexuality. Kim says she was hyper, she was sexually active, fairly young, never really valued herself or what sex could mean to her. Sex had no emotional connotations and almost became a way of self-harming, self-destructing because she felt so empty. Um, feeling rage, a very common denominator. Um, Jess says she was full of rage in a world where she was lost, alone, and among adults who did not care about her. She grew to be angry, and that that anger, uh, born from all the pain from her abusers, became rage. Uh, the rage became a barrier for her, a protector and a hinder. It held her back from so much, and she had to fight so hard to control it. She says, eventually I became, or eventually I came to a ceasefire with my rage and it hid deep inside of me, waiting, clawing at the bits of me for me to lose control. Rage is a symptom. Anger is a symptom. Both are emotions created, created out of other emotions. The flame of rage still sparks inside of me, she says. A black flame that if released would either destroy me to destroy or cure me. It was as if a part of me could watch with dry eyes as the world burned and another part of me would do anything to protect it. Uh, another comment that came up was developing selective mutism. Uh, Melinda says, I became withdrawn. I developed selective mutism and didn't speak for two years. I couldn't form relationships with people, became disconnected. That was then, as I grew older, I became aware of how that trauma was affecting my life and only by knowing how it affects me and being cognizant and alert to those feelings was I able to have a somewhat normal life. I'm not cured of my PTSD, but I'm high functioning and I have heard, turned my flaws into strengths. My hypervigilance is my safety net. My awareness protects me from danger. Uh, another comment that came up was, uh, tearing at clothing. I started tearing at, tearing at small parts of my clothing, uh, here and there because I was asked what happened while it was being patched up. I couldn't respond why, only show the tear and cry. Hmm. Uh, checking locks. Uh, Jennifer says she still does that, checks behind things and does sweeps through the house to make sure everything's safe, uh, checking on loved ones to make sure they're still alive. Uh, Melody says she was always afraid of abandonment and would call her parents, parents daily at lunchtime when she was at school just to make sure they ha that they hadn't died. She says to this day she gets scared when her husband is gone too long and doesn't call. Uh, I admit when my sons travel for work, uh, and that's quite often and some of the, sometimes quite far uh, to other countries, 
so, you know, I, I relate to uh, needing to have that frequent check-in to know that they're well and they're safe. Uh, be, be safe out in the big world, I tell them all the time, even when they're here in town, because they're not with me. They don't live with me anymore. They're grown-ass men. But, you know, bless their hearts. They put up with me. And bless their hearts in a good way, not the derogatory way. You know, down in the South, you say, bless your bless their heart. It's not necessarily a good thing, but it can go both ways for me. It just depends on the context at the time. Uh, but yeah, I do that. I check on my people. Uh, having panic attacks. Oh, God, can I relate to that? Having public panic attacks, Katie says, frequently. While in high school, a panic attack came on during a math class and she was rocking and crying and so confused with where she was, she would have flashbacks of her abusive past. Uh, she was bewildered uh, and it just grew the panic due to the confusion. I can relate to the panic attack issue. Uh, I have lived with that. Uh, it's not as pervasive anymore. Uh, I've learned some really good tools to help me through those, but I remember times in the grocery store suddenly just being so panicked, and I don't know if it was because there were so many other people around, or I, I couldn't tell you necessarily what triggered me in those moments, but there were times I'd have to leave the cart of groceries and walk out of the store. So I apologize to those grocery stores for doing that. Um, there were other times that... Uh, a loved one would be with me. My son was with me one time when it happened. Uh, we were near a bench in the store and I sat down. I put the cart in front of me, kind of sideways, kind of blocking me. And he sat down next to me and put his arm around my shoulders and just looked around, you know, like nothing to see here. You know, we're just hanging, go on about your business. He didn't say anything to anybody, but he let me know that I was safe, that I was with him, that he was going to be there for me. And I'm tearing up just thinking about it. But, you know, having panic attacks can be a horrendous barrier to overcome. And so it's all those little things that our support people are there for us through that help make such a difference. Uh, and then finally, on uh, the Muddy.com's questioning around uh, uh, signs you may have grown up with PS PTSD, uh, was the commenting on withdrawing emotionally. So, so common. Um, so if you grew up with PTSD or mental health struggles due to trauma, just know you are not alone. There is support available to you. And we encourage you, as we do in every episode, to uh, get the support you need. Uh, reach out to your healthcare professionals, your friends and loved ones. If you know or loved someone who is affected by domestic violence or emotional abuse and need help, we encourage you to call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. <laughs> Biggie encourages you in that as well as he barks at the background because I think the mailman just came by. <laughs> so a great way to end this segment with singing from Biggie Smalls. Um, at any rate, thank you for listening. We've run a little long here today on Wisdom Within, our podcast, uh, sharing with you today commenters from the Mighty.com uh, in the mental health area. 
and we appreciate your being with us and look forward to joining you again soon for another episode. Thanks for being with us. We thank you every day for joining us. We're glad you're here. You matter. And we look forward to talking with you again very soon. Thanks so much. Thank you.